America's ultimate political insider tells us the four voter types Democrats need to win next year. I'm Matt Robeson. This is Beyond Politics. We're available wherever you get your podcasts and, of course, on the Blue Amp channel on YouTube, joined, as usual, by my co-host, former U.S. Congressman Paul Hodes. Every so often, Washington insiders get into a tizzy because a comet flashing across the sky, the political guru that the insiders listen to delivers one of his famous deep dive analysis memos on what's going on under the surface in politics. And everyone drops everything and starts reading. It's like when a new Harry Potter book used to come out, except for political nerds. So when Doug Sosnick delivered his newest analysis, Paul and I knew we wanted to bring all of our listeners and viewers the voice that the pros listen to. And he's been kind enough to join us. Doug served as a senior advisor to President Bill Clinton for six years, including as the White House political director. He's gone on to advise over 50 U.S. senators and governors, as well as Fortune 100 corporations, foundations, universities for the last 35 years, including the NBA, I'm super into that, the Motion Picture Association of America, CNBC, and he's the co-author of a New York Times bestseller, Applebee's America, How Successful Political Business and Religious Leaders Connect with a New American Community. Doug Sosnick, welcome to Beyond Politics. Great. It's great to be here. Thank you. It's absolutely a pleasure to have you. And I, I let's just jump right into you. You write up your analyses in the form of a short memo. It's really digestible and it's really to the point. And you start, you go right at it. You open the analysis in your most recent memo by writing that the 2024 presidential race is taking shape in a period of deep turmoil when all the rules in American politics are being rewritten. What are those rules that are being rewritten right now? Look, one of the problems for an older guy like me is understanding. I may have understood the way the world and politics worked in the past. I have to unlearn that if the world has changed, and I do believe the world has changed. And so it's required me to rethink about what I assume to be the gold standard of how you analyze elections. So in the old days, if a president's running for re-election, it's really quite simple. In the old days, it's what is the direction of the country, right track, wrong track, what is the job approval of the president and where they stand and the, what's their number on the polls? So in other words, on a horse race, you just look at their, their number. So they're at 51, 48, 42. And if you knew that with the national polls, you had a really almost since uh, the beginning of modern polling and modern elections in 1960. If you knew that those three numbers, then you knew the outcome of the election, period. And I think we've gone through a political realignment in America and we can talk about this later if you want, but I don't think Donald Trump caused it. I think he accelerated trends that were already happening and has exasperated those trends, for better or for worse, depending on how you feel about Trump. But in the new politics, the president's job approval and the direction of the country, I don't think, are the clues now that you're looking for that you did in the past. In the midterm elections, Biden had a job disapproval of over 50% and a significant chunk of people who disapproved of Biden's presidency voted for the Democrats. And so part of what's happened now is in our divided country is there are only now a handful of states that matter. Paul, I would say that New Hampshire is one of them. We have, we have 39 states right now that are controlled, complete control state government by one party. Over half of state legislatures in America are veto-proof now in terms of the power. And so at this point, Starting in 2016, there are only at most eight states that matter in determining the outcome of close elections, be it presidential, Senate, statewide governors, and Senate races we just saw. And so that's why national poll numbers are no longer a meaningful clue as to what could happen in the election. For instance, 
the margins that Biden racked up in New York State and California was greater than his national vote spread and margin of victory against Trump around the country. So he racked up more bigger pluralities in two states. If you look at an analysis by Catalyst in the 2022 midterms, the voting patterns in the competitive states were completely different than the rest of the country. Turnout was actually was lower in the non-competitive states. Turnout was actually higher in the states that mattered in 20. So in the new politics, it's not about the president's job. It's not irrelevant, but it's not about purely right track or wrong track. It's not purely job approval of the president, and it's certainly not the national goals. The rest of the, of the opening paragraph that Matt quoted says, quote, for all the uncertainty, the roadmap to the 2024 election outcome could not be clearer. What is that clear roadmap? So the clear roadmap, first of all, let's talk geography. So the clear roadmap is really the only, as I mentioned earlier, eight states that are they're even plausibly competitive. Now, I'm not saying that, say Biden or whoever the Democrat, I'm not saying that they can't win Ohio, although I think it's likely. My point is, if they win Ohio, they're probably going to win 360 electoral votes. So if you're assuming it's a close election, which remember in 2016, if less, fewer than 80,000 people had voted differently in three states, Clinton right. won. In 2022, if fewer than 40,000 people voted in three states, Trump would have gotten reelected. So first of all, there's a geographic roadmap. And the geographic roadmap are four states in what was considered the old industrial, old economy America of Michigan, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, and New Hampshire. And then you have the new America where the, all the growth is. And that's North Carolina, Georgia, Arizona, and Nevada. Got it. So we do know then, if I went to the moon and I came back after the election, I don't need to know anything except the outcome of those eight states. You tell me the outcome of those eight states, I'll tell you who's the next president. Man, oh man, New Hampshire is such a tiny little place. To have you put it among those eight important roadmap states is really shocking to me. We don't have that many electoral votes. And golly, we don't even have the Democratic primary anymore. Let's not forget, though, Paul, right, that well, for all... Um, oh, go ahead. There are a number of scenarios. Remember, 42 states, I think, are not competitive. 42 states if it's a, if it's a close election. So for 42 states, you already have got an electoral count. There are, there's at least one scenario where the outcome could be 269 to 269. So that's one of the reasons New Hampshire is important. The other reason, I'm speaking as an outsider, but I always, New Hampshire voters is a bit contrarian. And the worst thing you can do is to take them for granted. And I don't think that Biden, I don't really understand Biden's decision to change the primary count. I do understand it in terms of moving Iowa out of the queue. That, that sh they, Democrats have been looking for a generation to figure an excuse to do that and how they failed to, to conduct the caucuses gave the Democrats the license. So I don't think that Biden runs a risk of, of losing the state in the primary. I assume the state will continue to have the primary even if it's not sanctioned. But I don't, I think there is a potential collateral cost in the general election to how Biden handled the state in the primary. But just look at the, who's the governor and the state legislature and speaking as a Democrat, can't look at that in the nature of New Hampshire voters and assume that that's a gimme for Democrats, even though I think Bush in 04 may have been the last Republican to carry the state. Just look at, and this is actually about to, I think that this bridges very well to the heart of your memo, but just look at the 2022 midterms and look what happened with the governor romping 
But what was the final margin, Paul? It was over 10 points. So oh, the Republican yeah. governor, Chris Sununu, is reelected, and Democratic U.S. Senator Maggie Hassan is reelected by nine points. That is the very definitional nature of a swing voter, someone who's willing to split ticket vote on the same ballot. But that does link to... I'm sorry, just one thing. Go, please. So I wrote a, you can Google me, I wrote a memo about the states to watch, but I did, I created a grid of these eight states and went back from 2016 presidential Senate and governor statewide races for the last one, two, four cycles. And you can look at New Hampshire and how it's swung wildly from one party to the other, as have all these other states. Just remember, 95 out of 100 senators of the same party is the presidential candidate who carried their state in the last presidential election. There are only 23 congressional districts out of 40, 435 in which you have a representative different than the presidential candidate who last carried their district. So we are moving, and the, and the census data that came out this week shows how we are basically choosing to live around people just like ourselves. And so it's these outliers like in New Hampshire, like was demonstrated in 2022, that's why they're so important because the rest of the country is so evenly and narrowly divided. And that's part of the argument that you make in this most recent iteration of your memo is that 2024 is going to turn on swing voters, voters who really could be persuaded and moved in either direction. You break them into four key categories. Let's run through them. You start with maybe the most important, although I'll let you tell me, the, what you call the double doubters. Who are the double doubters and what do we know about how and whether Biden can win them? So if it's okay, I will, I'll answer your question. I think what I'll do if it's okay is organize the four groups based on what is traditional, what have been traditional swing voters and what are new swing voters given the unique oh. nature of our country. Sure. The first, the sort of meta, two meta observations, one I've already made. I don't really care to focus on swing voters in Massachusetts or Mississippi or Washington State or Missouri. There are swing voters there, but they don't matter in terms of the presidential election. So the first thing about swing voters is they only care about the eight states that are competitive. The second thing about swing voters is the vast majority of swing voters in our country and in these eight states all live in the suburbs. There are currently only 46, only, currently only 46 congressional districts that are considered competitive, according to the most recent Cook political report. Um, there's not a single urban congressional district that's considered competitive. There are only three rural districts that are considered competitive, one of which is in the second district of Maine, just north of New Hampshire. So across the board, it's the suburbs of, is where the swing voters are with Democrats running huge numbers in urban areas and Republicans big numbers in the rural areas. And so the suburbs, again, if you tell me the results of the voting in the suburbs of Atlanta, Philadelphia, Pittsburgh, Madison, Milwaukee, Detroit, Maricopa County, which Phoenix out in Arizona, and Las Vegas, Reno, and Nevada, if you tell me where the, how the swing voters vote in those states, I'll tell you who's the next president. Then we have, as you mentioned, Matt, four groups of swing voters, I believe. So there are... There's one that's very traditional, which are independent voters. And increasingly, people are declaring themselves political independents because they feel alienated from both political parties. And in the last four election cycles, however, the independence vote went is the party that won. And we had the highest percentage of self-declared independent voters in 2022 as, a, as part of the electorate 
the highest percentage at any time since 1980. And just one state as an example, Arizona. On election day in 2022, 40% of the people who voted on election day in Arizona declared themselves political independents. So the first group are these independents, which have traditionally been a measure of who wins, loses elections. The second is a group that is has emerged in the last year, which are people that view abortion as a defining issue of how they vote. And there are two aspects to these abortion-related voters. The first is turnout. And secondly, if they turn out, how do they vote? And so we've seen throughout the, the 2022 cycle, this drove out. This was a significant increase in voters turning out because of the issue of and it favored Democrats significantly. The Gallup poll just came out with, I think, 68% of the people in this country, 69% think abortion should be legal in some form, which is the highest level supporting some form of abortion since they've been doing polling. And the more that the issue of abortion is a threat in the state, the more, in a sense, abortion is on the ballot. So you saw in 2020 in Michigan, where it was on the ballot, that it had enormous impact on turnout, enormous impact on how people voted. And it turned Michigan into, at least for now, a balloon-leading state. And the most recent example in the midterms, 2022, was in Wisconsin, where between a judicial race and the general, Wisconsin was, again, abortion was again on the ballot, and Democrats racked up enormous gains in Wisconsin because of that. In places like, for instance, California and New York in 2022, where abortion was not on the ballot, Republicans picked up. They have 10 seats right now in New York State and California that they're having to defend because abor those abortion voters were, really weren't mobilized because there wasn't a threat. So the third group, which is re related to, in part to abortion, are Republican voters. And Trump, if you look at Trump's polling right now, he seems to have increased his stranglehold on Republican primary. However, what the polling is consistently showing you is that there's around 25% of Republican voters who, do, who say they will not support Trump. And in the 2022 midterms, in the states that mattered, Democrats got double-digit support by Republicans in the governor's races in Michigan, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, and they racked up big numbers, relatively speaking, because we've been in a world in which there are no swing voters by party, in the Senate. And the week after the midterms in 2022, Mitch McConnell said, the reason that Republicans did not take the Senate back were defections by Republican voters in the key races. And so that's going to be a key swing group for Democrats as an opportunity and for Republicans, depending on who the nominee is, where they keep their losses down. And then the last group, which I call double doubters and some people call double haters, are they, is a large group of people, close to 70%, that don't want to vote for Trump and don't want to vote for Biden. And this group of voters was, has been decisive in the last two close presidential elections. In 2016, there were third for fourth party voters on the ballot, and 9% of the vote went to these third and fourth fifth party. It was clear from the post-election polling that if they had only had a binary choice, they would have supported Clinton. And then in 2020, when there was not a meaningful third party candidate, Biden overwhelmingly carried these double doubters and beat Trump. So the question, of course, will be, is there a meaningful third party candidate on the ballot in 2024? Right now, Cornell West is on the ballot and there's a lot of concern by Democrats, at least, that no one could man it. But Donald Trump basically cannot win an election in a two-person race. In the last two presidential elections, with the exception of Georgia in 2016, 
Donald Trump has never gotten 50% of the vote once in any of these eight state, other states in the last two elections. So he can't get to 50%, but he can get to 47 or 48%, which is enough if you've got a third-party candidate siphoning off the anti-Trump. So the last group of these swing voters are these double doubters. Let's take a break. We'll be right back. Hey, can I, let me just dig down a little bit and follow up if I can, because it's fascinating. And I think it, it just feels right when we now know that there are eight states that are the critical states. We've identified the four categories of swing voters that are probably the critical voters. And I've had some experience in in the independent voter. In my races in New Hampshire, I always paid very close attention to independents because the unaffiliated voters in New Hampshire who could vote either way in the primaries, et cetera, were actually the biggest voting bloc in New Hampshire, bigger than either registered Dems or registered Republicans. Now, what we've heard about over and over again from lots of people on is that the parties have focused on getting out their base. And that's what they really seem to have focused about when spending less dough and less attention on true swing voters. Your your argument is that the registered independents or the really dyed-in-the-wool independents are going to be the really are really important. And that seems like a throwback kind of to older politics than new politics. What do you think? The eight, let's look at only the eight states for a moment. So I've done an analysis and written previous pieces, which I believe that the, and I can, we don't have time today, but I believe that the single best predictor of how a state or district or any area votes is the level of education by people who live in those communities. And the higher the educated community, the more likely they are to support a Democrat, and the lower educated they are, the more likely they are to support the Republican. Trump carried in 16 and 20, 84% of the counties in the United States, 84%. But of the 16% of the counties that Biden carried, over 70% of the GDP growth in America came from those Biden counties. So the best predictor of how an area is going to vote is the level of education. And of the eight states, with the exception of New Hampshire, which I think is the 11th most educated state in the country now, I think in probably large part because of Southern New Hampshire and people moving in there, commuting into Boston, and Nevada, which is like 42nd or so, the other six states are all right in the middle of the education levels, which means they don't skew too educated or too uneducated. And that may, that's why they're competitive. And so back to your question then, for a campaign to win in these eight states, they have to have a two-track strategy. When does they have to get their turnout up? If you look at Trump's difference in the Trump in 16 and 20, it wasn't that he persuaded people to vote for him that didn't vote for him in 16. He grew the pie of his voters. And there's still a tremendous number of people who fit the profile of the Trump voter in these states that hasn't vote, have not voted in the past. And the same with Democrats. They have to turn their vote out. And the Democratic performance in big urban areas in America, like Philadelphia's in the world, have actually gone down. And so it puts even more of a burden. And that's where the swing abortion voters, I think, really matter. So you have to have a robust turnout operation to win. But it's not enough because in these states that are competitive and that the education levels are more flat, you then do have to have a very aggressive persuasion campaign for the swing voters. And I kind of look at the country, I'm oversimplifying. It's like, I think 40% of the country ultimately has moved to the crazy right. 
40% are crazy left and the 20% in the middle think the left and the right are both crazy. And they think that Republicans are creepy on social issues and they think it's weird that they're talking about the big steal of the election. And it's just a huge turnoff, particularly for younger people. And then for these other, the other side of it, they don't like Democrats. They don't trust them with their money. They think they're soft on crime. And so we're going through an extended period in our country of a transformation and transition. Biggest since we've seen since the late 1800s. When we went, we transitioned in the late 1800s from an agrarian society to an industrial society. It took 30 or 40 years for that to fully happen. We're going through the same profound transition now. It began in the early 70s with the beginning of the decline of manufacturing. But we've moved from a 20th century top-down manufacturing economy to a 21st century digital and global economy. So that's a transition. But right now, what's happened in our country is that 20% that are the swing voters, they're swinging from one party to the other because they don't like either party. So in the last 12 election cycles, since the beginning of the century, 10 out of the last 12 cycles, the country has voted in every single cycle except to either change control of the House, change control of the Senate, or change the White House. And in some election cycles, they've done both. And it's, mo- it's this is more of a period in this transition where we don't know where we're going. We just know we're, we're going through this transition. It's been very disruptive for a lot of people. It's largely a matter of these swing voters not voting for a candidate or a party, but rather voting against whoever's in power. And you saw that in 2022, where they were forced of a choice between 70% of the country thought we're headed in the wrong direction. Current president had a job approval, disapproval of over 50%, but they thought the other side was crazy. And they thought the other side was a threat to democracy. And they decided, despite those very negative numbers, to vote for Democrats because they thought that was a more attractive choice between two unattractive choices. Paul, I know that you have to actually, you have, you have a bit of a conflict. You've got to drop in a minute. I want to let you do the next question because I'm, as Doug gives us all of this amazing information, I'm racking up the questions here. Why don't you get one in? Yeah. Okay. I'm curious about the category of abortion rights voters. And I, I get that in certainly in the 2022 cycle, they were important. And I, and you lay out a strong case that, that for their importance in the midterms and other elections like referendums and other state cases. Given that we're a couple of years past the Dobbs decision and that things are, you know, what some people might say, things are shaken out. The states where people really are upset about it are maybe they're safe for Democrats. And But do you think, why do you think that abortion is still going to be a piv- such a pivotal issue? Is it still as hot as it was? Are people, are, are you confident that Democrats are going to make it hot? I think, I think, first of all, you don't know what's going to happen. That's why you have elections, right? DC. But there's absolutely no empirical data or evidence anywhere to suggest this issue's declining in importance. It was clearly, on all the election, post-election polling, it was clearly a significant factor in the outcome of the 2022 elections. As I mentioned earlier, the, the Gallup poll, which has been in business since the beginning of modern polling, shows a significant increase in people's support for women's right to choose. If you look, if you unpack the reasons that Republicans have been defecting away from the party, abortion is a big factor in that. 
And I also think, by the way, you can use the most recent Supreme Court decisions that came out in, the, in June on these social issues, these kind of social adjacent issues, particularly for young people. And this even reinforces even more the importance of voting. So I would be astonished if this issue receives an importance anytime soon. I think what I'd like to do is zoom out just a little bit. You, because I'd asked earlier about the double doubters, the people who just are unhappy with both. It's uh, my suggestion for you for this category, instead of double doubters or double haters is call them the princess bride voters. Clearly they can't choose the wine in front of you. Clearly they can't choose the wine in front of me. You talk at the very end of your memo about the threat of a third party candidate. Now, this is something that there's been a lot of chatter about. Political observers noted the fact that third party candidates, the libertarian Gary Johnson, the Green Party candidate, Jill Stein, they both respectively tripled their vote share between 2012 and 2016 when we saw an election between historically the two most unpopular nominees in American history. And as a result, Voters went running and they gave 3% of the vote to Gary Johnson, 1% to Jill Stein. There's a pretty coherent argument that Jill Stein vote in particular may have cost Hillary Clinton the election. Now the chatter is about the threat of a no labels candidate. You already talked about the potential for Cornell West to play a little bit of a spoiler role here. I guess a two-part question. How worried should Democrats be at this point about the emergence of a strong third-party candidate? And what if that third party candidate is a clearly identifiable Republican? Let's say Chris Christie were to change course and say, I'm going to run as an independent just to take down Trump. Would that make any difference? Well, look, let's go back. Just first of all, I think that people were assuming in 2016 they could have it both ways, where Trump wasn't going to win and they could go out and vote for a third, fourth or fifth party and be able to express their dissatisfaction without having to have Donald Trump as president. So I think a lot of people learned a hard lesson then, and you can see how that impacted 2020, where people understood that voting for a third party candidate was not free. There, there was a cost to that. So I think Democrats in general should, should worry about a third party only because a binary race between Trump and whoever is such an advantage for Democrats mm. because of Trump's support is somewhat narrow, but quite deep, but it restricts his ability to get 50% of the vote, as I mentioned earlier. So if you look at a, back to your Christie question for a moment. So if you look at third party candidates, meaningful third party candidates since 1980, if it's a center right candidate, it helps the Democrats. And if it's a center left candidate, it helps the Republicans. So Anderson in 80 was a center left candidate, Reagan won. 92 Perot is a center right candidate, enabled or helped Clinton win. Nader in 2000 was a center-left candidate. It cost Gore the White House. And I would say most of the 16 candidates were center-left, and it cost Clinton probably presidency. So a Christie center-right third party would accrue to the benefit significantly for Democrats. Let's take a break. We'll be right back. I want to try from a 30,000-foot level to connect a couple of dots that you've suggested, and I may do it wrong. By all means, feel free to correct me. We started the discussion talking about the first line of your memo, that the rules are being rewritten in American politics right now. And you observe that the key markers of what's gonna happen in an election, including presidential approval rating and right track, wrong track, 
are no longer as predictive as they used to be. This falls squarely into an argument that I've been making for a long time, and I've gotten some pushback about it, including on this show when we interviewed our old friend Jeff Pollack, the noted Democratic pollster. I said to him, hey man, it seems like presidential approval rating isn't saying what it used to say, that people are essentially doing what you talked about a moment ago in 10 of the last 12 elections. They've essentially had this thermostatic reaction of, I don't like what's happening, I'm voting for the other side. Now I don't like what's happening, I'm voting for the other side. It feels to me like when you see President Biden get 41, 42% approval rating, and you see something like 70% of America say, we're off on the wrong track, they're not necessarily telling pollsters, hey, I'm unhappy with Joe Biden, quad Joe Biden. It feels to me like what they're saying is, I'm unhappy. There's something that is clearly amiss. And if you look back, you noted that Gallup has been in this game since the beginning. For about 50 years now, they've been running their version of right track, wrong track. I can't remember exactly how they word it. But what you find is that the median number of respondents who say things are on the wrong track over the last 50 years is about two thirds of America. Americans seem to have become deeply unhappy. So looking more broadly beyond just 2024, what do you think is going on? Or is America being ailed by deeper forces that are making us unhappy and that our politics seem unable to address? Is, is that what's going on? Is that why people seem constantly dissatisfied with their choices? Or is there something else going on that you think is really driving this kind of pattern in politics? So I had said, what was, you said Pollock disagreed with you. What was his position? Pollock said that for him as a pollster, presidential approval rating is still a very valuable tool, especially on the congressional level. And he thought that because of the way, and maybe this is just the way Global Strategy Group does the words their question, he thought that because they give people a five-point scale, that there was enough nuance for people to be able to capture how they truly felt about the performance of the president. And so he still found it to be a valuable tool. My contention was, I think that this is a proxy. I think we're asking people, what do you think of the performance of the president? And what they're telling you is, I'm broadly happy or unhappy. I, look, I would take a broad middle ground, which is to say, I think it is a valuable tool, but it used to be the holy grail and it's no longer the holy grail. So to your question of what's going on, I think you have to look at it from, so let me just remind you, in my view at least, politics is a lagging indicator of what's going on in America. It's not a leading indicator. And so it's in many ways a reflection of how people have felt in the past, not what they're going to think in the future. So I think this stems from back to that transformation I mentioned earlier into a away from a manufacturing economy. I think this is a 50, this has been going on for 50 years now, started with the decline of the middle class. Currently, according to Pew, they just they came out last year with an analysis. 50% of the country is now considered middle class. It was 61% 25 years ago. And so for a lot of people, there's been a long economic decline in their fortunes. And it's particularly people on the old saying about the American dream where you, you graduate from high school, don't go to college, have a good paying job. Used to work in Michigan. These were guys who worked on the line and they would have a cabin up north and a boat. Those are the people that have been punished economically in this trans economic transition. This is the core of people that were democratic who voted for 
Obama in 2008-2012, who supported Trump in 16 and continues to to this day. But so it's a series of things, though, for this group of people who are battered now. One is the economic decline. Secondly, it was this group was by far the hardest hit in 2008 economic crisis. This group was hit hardest by COVID. This group has been hit hardest by inflation. And so there's a general sense for an increasing number of people in this country that they've lost control of their lives and that this stuff is happening to them. And that's what creates this overwhelmingly sour mood Mm. that is now baked in now for two decades. That's really interesting. It also gives me concern that the new push from the White House to sell the term Bidenomics is not going to work. All right, two more for you, one kind of mechanical and one step back summary. The mechanical question is this. You were talking earlier about the significance of not just the eight states that really matter in 2024. And by the way, there's been some degree of consistency here in the states that matter versus the states that that truly don't in the presidential election. You're also talking about the voters within those states, both demographically and geographically. I made an argument back in 2020 that I didn't really, I probably won't get to renew now about how Democrats nominate their nominee to be redundant. I think it's stupid. I think that the system we've come up with, and I say this as a longtime New Hampshire political operative, I do think the New Hampshire primary is dumb. I think it's not particularly valuable. And my problem is not that the New Hampshire vaunted town hall is a bad political filter. My problem is that I don't, I currently live in Massachusetts. I don't think the Democratic Party should really care how I vote in a primary because the kind of candidate who resonates with me is not what matters for defeating the Republicans. You should care what a primary voter in Maricopa County thinks about, what a primary voter in Fulton County, Georgia thinks. I argue, and this is way in the weeds, but hey, it's nerd hour. I argue that Democrats should totally reform their nomination process and should give vastly more weight to the state's that really matter in the presidential election. We should choose our Democratic presidential nominee based largely on which candidate can kick butt in Arizona and Michigan and Pennsylvania. Does my argument hold any water for you or am I crazy? I wouldn't call you crazy, but I would say it doesn't hold much water with me. Let me start by saying we are now about 50 years into our current system. After the 1968 presidential election, the party went through a huge number of reforms. And if you were to oversimplify what the change was, essentially the 68 convention, which was a disaster right. in Chicago, was really the last time that the back rooms, smoke-filled rooms, delegates really elected presidents. And so the McGovern nomination, 72, and the elections from 72 forward, which are now half a century, is the modern structure and way that we do it. It was in a sense of opening up the process, putting sunshine into the process and empower, empowering more people to participate. And day and age, there, there are a number of reasons that I don't think what you're suggesting is doable. First of all, it's a subjective analysis of who decides what's a competitive state or not, first of all. Secondly, it changes. If you did it Two cycles ago, Ohio was a competitive state for Democrats and Virginia was a competitive state for Republicans. So 
you've got the problem of how do you quantify what constitutes a competitive state, both on the numbers and then you have the politics of that. And secondly, you've got to do that, redo that every four years because it changes, presumably. And thirdly, I don't see any way you're going to be able to do that in a democracy in general, but particularly for the Democratic Party. I, I could see it leading to some absolute drag out fights. It's true. Just look at the experience of what they've done with the New Hampshire. All right. Maybe it's impractical. Maybe it's impractical. All right. Let me get you out of here on this. How do you feel? How should Democrats feel at this stage in terms of the chances of beating Trump? And let's not put too fine a point on it, avoiding an absolute catastrophe for America. We had the pollsters who do a very well-designed poll in New Hampshire. And as you outlined, the state-based polls are more significant. On the show last week, they found that at this stage of the game, not just that Biden is ahead of Trump 49 to 40, but also that there are really no arguments that voters find particularly salient as negative arguments about Biden, except for his age. So there are limited lines of attack. And I argued, hey, based on this, at least in New Hampshire, Democrats should feel pretty good. So how do you feel at this stage in terms of your confidence and what could happen that would make you feel either significantly better or significantly worse? So I think that I was on a, a call the other day, Zoom call with, and amongst the participants was a well-known regarded Democratic operative in New Hampshire, Terry Shoemaker. And Terry made the observation, which I think is well put, that right now feels a lot like 1968. Mm. And 68 was like a very kind of clearly formed and shaped election right. that was turned on its side in March of 68, in part due to McCarthy's success in the New Hampshire primary, Johnson announced he wasn't going to run for re-election. And you never would have thought up until the night he did that, that would have ever happened. And I, as a Democrat, I have conflicting views about this, but I feel in this unsettled environment, a bit of a sense of foreboding about the future on the the negative side is, of course, age is a potential issue, and it could be played out in a variety of different ways with Biden. And Harris's poll numbers right now don't give Democrats reassurance that if, for whatever reason, Biden doesn't run again, that she steps in and can do that. I also have a, a certainly a level of respect for the power of Trump that I did, certainly did not have in 2016. And I, I never thought he'd be like a president. I never saw it coming. It seemed inconceivable to me. I was much more guarded. So I wrote an article in 2017 in the Washington Post where Trump is 38% job approval and whatever. I wrote an article saying he's all on his way to getting reelected. And I, while I did not think he was going to win in 2020, I was very concerned about the power of his candidacy, both as a candidate, but also his ability to appeal to voters. And again, he didn't really persuade many people vote for him in 2020 that didn't vote for him in 16, but he increased, I think, by 7 million, the number of people who voted for him. And those were people who hadn't voted in the past. And there's still a deep pool of those people in these eight states that he can draw upon. So that also make, gives me a lot of heart about Trump. On the positive side, Trump is doing everything possible to alienate all but his hardcore voters. And so if you look at suburban voters, you look at independent voters, you look at moderate-ish, moderate whatever you want to call them, Republican voters, he's doing everything possible to not get their vote. So that makes that's on the positive side. So if you net all that out, I would say I have, at best, cautious optimism about the future, at best. I think that's a feeling, that's an emotion that Democrats have gotten really used to in especially post-2016 is the numbers 
and your arguments in this memo seem to veer in a positive direction, but history tells us let's not get ahead of ourselves. Okay, Doug Sosnick, thanks so much for all of your wisdom, all of your guidance, all of your analysis. We absolutely loved having you on the show and we'll have to have you back anytime you feel like it. Thank you so much. Great. Thanks, Randy.